We're in the book of Acts this morning, Acts chapter 6. I'll read 1 through verse 7. Hear the holy and perfect word of our holy and perfect God. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, proselyte from Antioch, and these they brought before the apostles, and after praying they laid their hands on them. The word of the Lord kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would have mercy upon me, that you would cast any foolishness away and that you would give me insight into your word and I would be able to rightly divide this portion of your word and feed your lambs, Lord Jesus, on your word that we would be conformed into your holy image, to your glory. Have pity upon me, have pity upon all of us. Pray that we truly would be found on the spirit on this, your Lord's day, and that we could worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray these things in the Redeemer's name. Amen. The primary doctrine before us in our passage, I think I could have chosen the larger section, but I thought would get two sermons out of 1 through 15, um, has to deal with the, the institution of the office of deacon. If you look at our passage... If you read our passage along with me, you notice that the word deacon doesn't appear in the particular passage, though the truth or the concept of deacon appears. Um, The Bible actually doesn't have a whole lot to say about the office of deacon in particular. I think the word deacon, which means servant, is used only, um, let's see, uh, five times. Once in the book of Philippians, Four in the book of First Timothy, and then if you uh, also in the feminine to Phoebe in um, Romans sixteen, that would be six times. So Philippians one one, for example, uh, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Jesus who were in Philippi, including including the overseers, that's the elders, and then the deacons, that's Philippians one one. As I mentioned, the word deacon just means servant. And when we are considering here, it's something of a thematic sermon, the institution of this particular office here, it's a new office instituted in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The preeminent servant is the servant of the Lord, Jesus. Jesus is both our propitiation. He has taken our sins. He's the atoning sacrifice. And he's the great exemplar. Um, we, We look to him to how to live. He's the perfect man, the perfect God-man. And so when we consider who is the perfect servant, the perfect servant is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we consider the office of a servant, and the office of an elder is a servant, but the office of a deacon is a servant in in another way, 
we are Christ's servants to Christ's people. And when we look to Jesus, he's the one that teaches, well, he gives us the ability, being born again in him by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's the one that shows us how to gird our loins, how to humble ourselves, and how to wash feet, essentially, how to serve other people. But it's serve other people for Christ's sake, to serve other people in his name and for his glory. That, that's the whole business. So we're looking at the institution of a particular kind of servant in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the church of Jesus Christ is much bigger than the OPC or Reformed Christianity, and he owns everything, every true believer, every little body of believers that profess the gospel along with their children. That's a true church, whether they're Baptist, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, what have you. And Jesus Christ has purchased all of that church. And Jesus Christ is not only Lord of the Sabbath, but he's Lord of the sacraments. He's Lord of the offices, and he puts the office of elder in the church. He puts the office of deacon in the church. And we're looking at that, the institution of that diaconate. So if this were a Bible study, perhaps I would outline it. It does actually fall out neatly. If you look at your Bibles, I don't know if it falls out this way with your editors. But the passage I just read, 1 through 7, has a threefold division in it. And if you look at verse 1, that's the problem. So something's good, good is going to come out of a problem. And usually we think problem's bad, non-problem's not bad. We get the great ecumenical creeds because of problems, because of heresies. And then the church had to double down and look at, so what about the nature of the Godhead? What about the two natures of the, of, of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ? So we're going to look at right away there's a problem. There's division and complaining going on in the church. And then verses 2 through 6 is the solution, which is the institution of the diaconate. And then verse 7, and perhaps I'll talk about the truth represented by verse 7 more in next week's sermon, if I'm here next week, and if you're here next week, which is the success or the outcome or one of the, one of the outcomes of the institution of God's people obeying the leading of the Holy Spirit, instituting the, the, the office of a diaconate, and then instituting the fair distribution of food among the widows, no matter whether they're Jews or Gentiles. So that's kind of the division of the passage. Um, problem, solution, outcomes, so, some, something like that. We read Psalm 68, and I put that in our liturgy for a reason. I was actually thinking in my head, Ephesians chapter 4, which is, uh, Paul uses in Ephesians, he uses 68 to say, when Jesus ascended on high into heaven, so Jesus eternally existed, as the second person of the Godhead, the eternal beloved Son of God. And then in time, he was born of the Virgin Mary, overshadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of her yet without sin. He enters into his estate of humiliation. When he ascends, when he, excuse me, rises from the dead, he enters into his estate of exaltation. When he ascends up into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, that's his exaltation. So considering his life as a mediator, humiliation, exaltation. We all are in that that scheme. We're in our state of humiliation. We're in the cross-bearing time. Very soon will come our crown-wearing time like Christ. But the Bible says, Ephesians, quoting Psalm 68, when he ascended, he gave, he gave good gifts. And I'm arguing from this passage, one of the good gifts that he gave to his church, which he purchased with his blood, he owns it, he gives the, the gift of office. In the, the particular office that he's giving as a gift, his gift to his people, is this office of a deacon. 
And the deacon, and I'll just kind of, if I don't ever get around to it, because usually I'm way top heavy in my sermons, I know. It's a minister of mercy. This man is a minister of mercy. And so the elder is a minister of mercy regarding spiritual things expressly. And then the deacon is a minister of mercy trying to alleviate physical, material needs of those suffering in the body of Jesus. So both are ministers of mercy. They just are, are, are administering them in kind of a different way. And it's a both spiritual office. It's not as if the elder has a spiritual office and the, uh, the deacon doesn't have a spiritual office. It's both spiritual, but they're just manifested differently. One is, is more uh, engaged in the ministry of the word and uh, sacrament, prayer, and the other fellow more uh, engaged physically with, in this case, the needs of widows who don't have enough food to eat. But both are spiritual. Don't think... Um, the way that we usually think a pastor, elder, deacon, and then when you get promoted you, from a deacon, you get promoted to an elder. Don't think. They're two different offices. Um, a man may have a gift for a deacon, and the elder doesn't have the gift. But to some degree, every elder should have the gift to serve. Um, but, but you see what I'm getting at. Now, let's look at verse 1 which is the problem out of the problem comes something wonderful which is this office of um, deacon so what did we read verse 1 now at this time the disciples were increasing in number a complaint arose and there's a schism going on between the Hellenistic Jews these are the Greek speaking the Gentile ish Hellenistic Greek speaking Jews and the native Hebrews so there's a there's a division going along Going on, and there's kind of a, a complaint uh, and a fight going on in the church, running along, I would say, cultural lines. And so we have a. Uh, I think this is true. I think this is the first recorded dispute of the New Testament church within within the church. And so there is a dispute or a dissension. There's some, and I'm going to I'm going to define dissension and dispute in just a bit, and then a little bit the complaint. Because their dissension, their disunity, takes the form uh, of a complaint. Uh, so this is what we're looking at. A dissension is a disagreement that leads to discord. A dissension is a disagreement that leads to discord or disunity. What is it? Is it Psalm 133 or 134? I forget which. How blessed and good it is when brothers dwell together in what? Well, it's horrible when brothers and sisters don't live in unity and love and kindness. It's, it's horrible when they're at one another's throats. That's discord, disunity. So in the dissension, there's some kind of partisan, contentious quarreling. You remember we see dissension or division in 1 Corinthians. Early on in 1 Corinthians, one group would say, we're of Apollos, we're of Cephas, Peter's our guy, um, Paul is, and some guys would go, Paul is our guy. And then who beats them all? Jesus, we're of Jesus. I mean, so I want to be in the Jesus party. So you have all of this little jockeying back and forth. And we see that there is a dissension, there's disunity, and there's parties. One party is fighting against another party within the church, and there is a disagreement. Some synonyms for what's going on, basic synonym, um, are fighting. There's fighting in the church. I know this is going to be a stunner to you, but there's fighting in the church. Uh, disagreements, disunity, uh, infighting, maybe perfection of the fighting idea, strife, schisms. And so the idea is we have the, um, the more Grecian culture, the Hellenized culture against the more uh, Hebrew culture, Jews. 
they're fighting amongst one another, and we see their complaint. The Grecian uh, believers are being short shrifted in their the widows in the daily distribution of food. Let me say just something generally about the idea of division. After the definition, the source of these dissensions, this is in the church. This is not outside of the church. We've said this a lot, and I'm not feeling very feisty. Um, Worldlings, unbelievers, uh, George Whitfield was exactly right. Half beast, half devil. Half beast, half devil. The sad thing is when you get in the church and you find out, wow, some of that half beast, half devil can make it through the front door and sometimes make it in the pulpit and make it in the pew. And then we can have, rather than the peace and the love and the unity, we can have disagreements in the church. And it is not possible, in my opinion, to find any church upon the earth until we die and go to be with a church in heaven, to find a church in which there's no, there's no disunity, there's no possibility of disunity. That would mean that you're in a building with no people in it. And so even true believers, real believers, people that really love Jesus, these people that are fighting, I think they really love Jesus. We still have the flesh. We still have the flesh. I think the flesh is our worst enemy, by the way. I understand the, the, the world being moved along by the devil. I understand the devil um, is our enemy, as Luther would kind of demarcate them. Um, I think our flesh is the worst enemy. So even true believers have the real flesh. And the devil doesn't need to be very tricky to set off decision, dissension in the church. So there are fights and quarrels and party spirits in the church are ordinarily not from God. They're ordinarily not from God. And the reason I say ordinarily, and you know this, if you've been in the church any length of time, it doesn't matter what, reform, not non-reformed, it doesn't really matter. And you're a little bit older, so you know how things work. You're not a kid. You know that sometimes when people fight and quarrel in the church, we can dress it up. To make I hate you look like I hate you because I love Jesus so much and I'm going to destroy you for the glory of Jesus. And we dress it up. This is true. I'm telling you the truth. You know I'm telling you the truth. Not all fights in the church, not all division in the church is wrong. There is a time. (laughs) There is a time to stand on the Lord's side. And there is a time to stand up for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a time to stand up for holiness, for righteousness. There is a time. So not all saying, I disagree with that. I disagree with adding works to our justification. It's only Christ is the ground. Only faith in Jesus is the ground. My justification. I disagree with your adding my good works. I disagree. I'm sorry. Please stop saying that. There's a time for right division and right dissension and right complaining and there is a righteous anger I don't know if I've ever had it maybe once I'm 58 I might have had it once for like three minutes Um, righteous anger is a strange critter most of our anger beloved if we are honest with ourselves most our anger is not I am so offended that Jesus is so offended it's not that if we're honest what what are we angry at I cannot believe you hurt me that I treat as my, myself as my God. You have not given me the honor due to my name. I'm angry with you. That's sin. So there, I am recognizing right away there is a time to stand up and fight for the Lord and divide among professing Christians. But I would argue even when we do it, we can't have unity at the sake of um, truth. You've got to do it like Christ. You've got to do it like Christ. 
be gentle, meek, mind. I know everybody thinks they're Martin Luther. They're not. Um, Most of our fighting that we have with other human beings and in the church, should I tell you what it is? It's obnoxious sin. (laughs) It's obnoxious. Fighting with other people is not from God. We're called to love people. We are called, blessed are the what makers. Blessed are the what makers. Blessed are the peacemakers. I know there are folks that think they have a gift from God to wreck churches and wreck homes and wreck everything else, being the fight makers. That's from hell, beloved. That's from hell. It's from the devil. It's from the flesh. It's obnoxious to God. God is a God of love. God, Christ is a Christ of peace. We are to be meek peacemakers. Peacemakers. Jesus is the consummate peacemaker. So most fighting among other human beings is obnoxious to God. And um, it is abusive of our fellow man. It's derisive of the honor of Jesus. And then we aggravate our sin when we fight with other human beings and complain and, and separate. You're white, I'm black. You're rich, I'm poor. You have a degree, I don't have a degree. You're a Democrat, I'm a Republican. I hate you. This obnoxious is obnoxious. is bloody obnoxious. It is not fitting of the name of a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's from hell. It's from hell. And it brings dishonor to Jesus. It's the expression of a worldling. And what makes that fighting among human beings even worse is, is what we're seeing here. It occurs among what kind of folk? Believers. What is the mark that you know Jesus Christ really, like truly, savingly, that you are a born-again Christian on your way to heaven? What's the preeminent mark that Jesus says? What is it? That you're a Calvinist, that you're an Arminian, or you're Reformed or non-Reformed? What is it? You love the what? The brothers. (laughs) You love other Christians of They love Jesus. They love the gospel. And I know we refine that so we get to hate people. But that gets us back to the problem. Fighting among fellow Christians and causing dissension in the body, which is kind of what's going on here. The devil loves this. So we are to be busy plundering the devil's kingdom with with the gospel of Jesus. And instead the devil does what? I want Sally to fight with Betty. Bobby to fight with Joey. They're not even going to talk to the heathen. They're going to be so busy abusing themselves. It's a, it's a trick of the devil. So there's dissension. There's nothing new under the sun. Everyone who's older than five years old that's been in the church has seen all of this nonsense. But this is here for our instruction. So there's dissension and disunity. But I'm going to say something good. God will bring something wonderful out of something which is not very pretty, which is sinful. He does it all the time. Was it Joseph that said to the brothers, listen, what you meant for for evil, God is going to do what with? He's going to do something great. God's going to take this sinful situation of the Grecian shafting the Hebrew believers. He's going to bring something beautiful out of it. He's going to give this beautiful gift of a deacon, of a servant to the church. And the Apostle Paul, writing in another instance of division in the church, Corinth was blessed by God with a great many gifts, but they were nutty as jaybirds. They were were dividing and fighting all over the place. 
And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you know what? There's dissension and division and disunity in the church, and it has to occur. Do you know why? Because it shows who's approved. What does that mean? So the people that are professional dissenters and disunifiers, it shows that they're not true what? If the preeminent mark of being a Christian is love to the brethren, the preeminent mark of being a false Christian is non-love to the brethren. So this is very important stuff for us, but God in his divine alchemy can bring beautiful things out of exceedingly ugly and painful things. That's his job. He's in the saving and the sanctifying sinner's business. But we're looking at a division in the church. It comes from the flesh. One group is valuing in another group over, over another group because of their cultural distinction. We'll talk about that maybe in a little bit, but that's what's going on. Now, the source of dissension or disunity takes the place of complaining. And I'm going to argue from this, all complaining is not wrong. In complaining, I'll give you the simple definition. The simple definition is, in this case, it's some kind of verbal, and now it's written in the Bible, but it's it's a verbal expression of our disagreement with an instance in which we think we've been wronged. We're saying, this is wrong, and this wrong has occurred to me, and this is why it's wrong, and we express that. That's complaining. Now, we can complain to God, and that's not sin. It's always bad to complain of God. It's always bad. Even after what happened to Job, he was broken and he complained, but he didn't complain about God. And so there's a, there's a, there's a proper saying, that that's wrong. You are doing me wrong, and I'm going to voice my displeasure in this, and I want it to be rectified. So in the instance of these widows, the Grecian believers against the, the, the Hebrew believers, the Grecian widows are saying, we're getting short shrift here. Like we're, we're not getting the food that the Hebrew widows are, are getting. And th- so this is a form of injustice. And human beings, even fallen human beings, we have a highly developed sense of justice. You watch one kid. This happens in the home. If you have more than one kid, you know it. One kid lives to get spanked and the other kid skates through life because he's your favorite kid or she's your favorite kid. And the kids pick this up. They go, oh, Bobby is your favorite, and I'm, 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 I'm Cinderella. I live to get spanked, and, Cinder, and, and the other one gets, gets a pass. And they get what? This is unjust. Am I not, am I not right? So these people, when they complain, this is, all complaining is not bad. They, there's a just cause. We're not getting our daily beans and our daily water. And because the Jewish believers are only giving it to the Jewish other widow believers and they're shafting us. And here's something, that, so they, they complain rightly. It has to be right, factually right. And there's another thing I think that happens that shows the rightness of their complaining. Again, the dissension is usually from sin. There's actually, the dissension is because of sin, this cultural affinity shafting the other believers, but their complaint is, the complaint is just. And another thing that they do to show us the rightness of what they do is somehow it gets brought to the apostles. They're bringing it to the leaders. This is not vigilante justice. They're grabbing the people saying, where's my beans? Where's my water? 
So they take it to the people that are required by God, by Jesus, to administer the word of God in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They go to their leaders and say, there has been a wrong committed against us, and I would like you to rectify this. So that's the problem of what's going on with the dissension and the complaining and so on. Now, the, the, the occasion of Acts, Acts 6 actually comes after Acts 5. Stunning, I know. We've seen a couple of wonderful things. Prior to this, we saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, obviously in Pentecost, but after the apostles, Peter and, uh, Peter and John, are getting abused uh, by the Sanhedrin for preaching Jesus, the persecution of, of Christians is ramping up. The Holy Spirit then is poured out with great power upon the church. And you remember what they've done just prior to the sermons, this sermon, what they did? It, it's the opposite of what we see here. Here, they are abusing the poor. What did they do in the prior sermon? Remember what happened? The Holy Spirit is filling these believers. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And they look around and think, you know what? These other Christians, they really are my brothers and sisters. I love them like my mom. I love them like my dad. And and the guy that had an extra tract of land or an extra house or whatever, he saw his fellow believers suffering in need. You know what he did? I'm going to sell it. I'm going to sell it. And that man, that woman is like my brother or my sister, my mom or my dad. I'm going to take my extra and I'm going to give it to the apostles so they can feed these people because they're my family. What do you think of that, beloved? What do you think? Forget who I read. I, I read so much. Who said sometimes we learn, we always learn propositionally, proposition words, truth. That's how the gospel. But people learn very much by looking at um, our lives. What a platform. It's great to say the God. It's great to give the gospel for God so loved the world. You believe in Jesus Christ. You no condemnation, eternal life. John three sixteen. Believe and be forgiven. That's true. But isn't it an added motive to people to receive that when they look at the distributor of that gospel and they see that man living or that woman living a holy, loving life? Isn't it? You, you look. How would it be, if you're a pagan you, or a Jew who doesn't believe in Jesus, this guy just preaches Jesus and you watch him sell his stuff and give it to poor Christians. What are you thinking? Whoa, what does he have that I don't have? Jesus, the Holy Spirit. So we go from that, which is a great manifestation of the Holy Spirit filling the believers, people who say they love Christ and they show that they love Christ by loving other people that are believers. They show it. It's glorious. And right on the heels of that, we have chapter 6, which is what? A failure. (laughs) So prior, there's great success. They're walking closely with Jesus. Everything looks awesome. And now we go, wow, that's awful. (laughs) You're shafting the poor widows and not giving them their food. Beloved, I'm going to share something that you probably already know. This is the Christian life. (laughs) This is you this is me. This is the Christian life. On one occasion, I could look at your life and go, this person, look at the walk. They're fervently praying. They're fervently loving Jesus. They're serving their fellow man. Look at them washing their feet. Look at that. And then I can look at you or look at me five minutes later and think, boy, howdy. 
that was a bad word that came out of your mouth. <laughs> that doesn't look very Christianly. That doesn't look like you love people. Does that mean you're not a Christian? No, it just means you're not in heaven. This is the Christian life. Up, down, all around. Up, down, all around. Martin Luther said the Christian life is one long string of what? Repenting. Repent. We, we love Jesus, believe in Jesus, try to serve people for Christ's sake. Fail. Repent. Reform. And the whole thing starts all over again. Now, hopefully, incrementally, the good outweighs the bad in our progressive sanctification, but this is the Christian life. So you'll look at a Christian and go, wow, on one instance. I read theology books. There are theologians that I read and go, wow, look at that. And then I read something else that they read and I go, yikes. I wish I didn't read that. <laughs> that's, the, that's the experience. So we have this. We have the relief of the poor. And now we have essentially the abuse of the poor, which is kind of what's going on. Um, what's interesting, again, we're just looking at the occasion for the institution of diaconate. And then I'll talk about Maybe I'll apply First Timothy to, 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 the, to the men that they choose. You have in this body widows, and they're getting a daily portion of food. They're poor. I know this is, is evident. There are people that call themselves Christians, and they say, if you believe in Jesus, if you believe enough in Jesus, you have to believe enough. It's always enough, whatever that means. You can be super healthy. You're never sick. And if you believe enough, you don't ever have to be poor. Now, if you believe that, which is a lie, and you are sick and poor, what would you think? <laughs> what a Christian. Beloved, if I walk through every single person sitting in these seats, guess what I know? You're broken here, you're broken there, you're broken here, uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. Jesus never promised to make us sick and rich, I mean, healthy and rich. Jesus promised what? I'll save you from your sins and conform you into my image and take you to be with me. Beloved, there are poor folks in the church. There are poor folks in the church. There are widows that didn't have enough money to eat in the church, and they love Jesus. And here's the deal. Jesus loved them. If you're sick and poor, as a Christian, sometimes you're, you're, you tend to think this, God doesn't love me. Oh, oh, I'm not the only one. When you're laying there with something that you don't want in your life, whatever that thing is, you start thinking, man, what am I doing wrong? Is God beating my head in? Does he not love me anymore? Am I not on the good team? Right? Don't think that. These widows love Jesus, and Jesus loved the widows. And they're widows. God took their husbands. They don't have a husband. And, and because they have daily food, it shows they don't have sons and daughters. Because the son and daughter are supposed to take care of them. They don't have family. To, or, these are widows indeed. And they can't even feed themselves. And they're loved by Jesus. And, and they're in the church. And what we learn, I know I'm preaching on the poor people, but like, we'll get around to deacons maybe, but what does this show us about the body of, of Christ? God's putting the body of Christ the way that he wants to put the body of Christ. We all are joined to Jesus by spirit-wrought faith and we're forgiven of our sins. That doesn't mean we're the same. One guy gets one calling. The elders are saying, we're called to preach and to do prayer. Good on you. And then we have the office of the deacon. He's called to help minister to the widows. Good on you. There's poor folk in the church. Who else are in the church? Rich folk. 
What does that mean? The rich folk are there to help the what kind of folk? The poor folks. <laughs> Who did that? God did that. So in the church, you think, boy, that guy's a mess. That girl's a mess. I met someone the other day. I had the privilege of preaching a funeral on Friday. And I spoke with one of the people, the workers at the place. And, I, and the person, we were talking, and I could tell they weren't, well, she said, well, sometimes like ministers in big churches, they have like a minister of like, um, like a not preaching minister, but like a counseling minister. And I know typically in our corner of the things, we tend to look down on that, but we're wrong um, in that. Counseling ministers are awesome. I praise God for them. In a tiny church, you can't have that because the guy's busy writing 50 sermons and cutting the grass. But in a big church, you can have the counseling guy. So when you're a train wreck, you can go to the guy. In a small church, you say, believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, and I'll pray for you. But the woman said, well, you go to the counseling minister, then he only knows the people that have problems and whose lives are a train wreck. That's all he knows. So I said, well, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. <laughs> We're all train wrecks. <laughs> we all need... We all have so much. So when you look and think, why the, the person next to me has so many problems? You know why they're there? So you could help them. The Bible says, you who are mourned and have learned the comfort in your mourning, you go to your fellow struggler. God saved you out of whatever he saved you for. And the person sitting in the, in the pew needs you. You help them. You see what I mean? This is like a... God divinely puts the body of Jesus Christ together. You think, these poor folks, they're always a pain in the neck and they're always asking for money. They need your money. And you need to give them your money. You need to help them. I, what did Luther say? God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them and you need them. Something like that. So God puts the body together. And of course, we all want to be the rich guy that helps the poor guy. But sometimes in God's providence, it's the other way around. Now the sin that's going on it's a cultural, cultural kind of sin. The Grecian, the Hebrew disciples are the ones obviously distributing the food. So they're giving the Hebrew widows their extra, their whatever their portion, and they're shafting the Grecian Hebrew believers. Um, so there's a cultural problem there. Even as believers, the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, in Jesus, there's no Greek, Jew, male, female. This is not, I know the Episcopalians, I think, I forget when they did this. They use that passage to prove lady preachers. That's, that's isogesis. That's bad to do that. That's wrong. This doesn't mean there aren't any Greeks or blacks or white or rich or poor. It means ontologically in Jesus, we're all equally loved and forgiven. That's what that means. Now, the business of distinction, this cultural distinction, this is what they're, they're, they're going. Those women are like us. They're like us. Same language, same culture. Yeah, the other ones are Christians, but the other ones are really like us. Right? And so then they favor the ones that are culturally more like them. I'm from Boston. When I forget my switch my R's and all that, and I add an R where there shouldn't be an R, pizza, that goes the R at the end of pizza, all that. And when I go back home and I hear the guy ordering the large grinder, I start getting tears in my eyes and I want to hug him. I really do. And you know, wherever you're from, if you're from whatever, wherever you're from, you're raised in the Carolinas, you're and you hear what you hear. Don't you have this affinity? Oh, this like me. 
Beloved, when those things take the place of our oneness in Jesus, that's obnoxious sin. Yankees are not my people. Christians are my people. It doesn't matter. Christians, not black, white, not Yankees, Southerner. Christians are our people. But that other thing, we don't think so. That other thing is in there. And that other thing comes out. Well, you're really, and you're going to get the extra. You're not really, and you're not getting the extra. That's obnoxious. That's like being an unbeliever. That's like reason like a worldling. And, 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 that, and that's hard to do. Even people that know Jesus, even Reformed people. I had a Reformed guy tell me many years ago, my people. I said, what do you mean your people? Your people? You better be talking. Christians are your people. Because the moment you start going, I'm going to favor that one because of this thing, and it's not Jesus. That's being transformed by the thinking of the world. And so God has this horrible situation, and then he inspires the apostles to come up with this. They he gives the solution. He says, go look for seven guys. They, the apostles say, look, we've got the ministry, the service of the word and prayer, and you can't do everything. There's only so many hours. So God has a distribution of labor in the church, and he institutes these, this, this office of deacon. And they're going to minister, in this instance, the daily food to the widows. The early church was poor, and they're trying to help their, the poor people in the midst. So God has concern for our souls, and God has concern for our bodies. And one way that we show that we have concern for our, our souls is we minister concern for people's bodies. I'll tell you this. This this is not for reward because I've already lost reward. I've talked to my wife about it. So transients come to church all the time and they scare the stuffing out of me because they're scary looking, but they come around the church all the time. And I pray that I would tell tell them about Jesus, which I usually do. But they scare me sometimes. They sleep under the portico and then they charge their phone and lots of other things and they walk around and get water from our tap. But one day this week, I saw a guy... And I had forgotten, left the door unlocked, and he was skulking around back here. And then I watched him come to the front. Like, and I was praying, oh, I gotta talk to this guy, even though he's scary. So I get my I'm looking at him, can I outrun him if he pulls a knife? Okay, I'll talk to him. And so I met him, and my wife is a germaphobe, and she always says to me, Don't shake their hand, don't, and she covers me with alcohol and don't. And as soon as I opened the door, this is what he said to me. Will you give me a cup of cold water? Who here can say, I'm not giving you a cup of cold water? You know where I'm getting that language from? Matthew 25. How am I going to look at Jesus? And Jesus says, I sent the transient to you. I put the words in his mouth. Will you please give me a cup of cold water? No, says I. Oh, the way we show the real concern for the souls to tell them about Jesus. And then the, one of the ways that we show that we are actually honest is when God sends us someone and we're not looking around, is there anybody else that can touch this guy? No, you, I sent him to you. Gives these deacons. And he says, here, these, these men are going to be set apart to have this kind of mercy. God is a God of mercy. To have ministry to, the, to these people poor widows. And I, and I know I'm not talking about the, the distinction and all of those things because I've gone too long. I just want to wrap it up this way. Maybe at a later sermon I can add it in there. Verse 7 says, after this occurs, and I will tell you this, 
The seven guys that they, they, they install, they have Grecian names. It's very shrewd. And so you see clearly the apostles are shown, hey, what we've been doing with this cultural division is wrong. And they repent by their reformation. And they show these Grecian widows that they're serious. And they choose men with Grecian Hellenized names as deacons. And, and they say, essentially, we're going to rectify the problem. Beloved, problems in the church, if they're handled according to the word of God for the glory of Jesus, is going to work to the betterment of the people. And then look at what happens on verse 7. Look what happens. Great success. The church grows. The gospel flourishes. When people say, no problem here. No, no, no problem here. We're not stopping the sin that we're going to do. They deal with it. And they, God provides. And the people once again have retained that Christ-glorifying unity and love. May God make us all more like Christ, more willing to humble ourselves, to gird our loins. And when God sends us people to help, whether it's a cup of cold water or a kind word. I heard a minister the other day. Actually, it's, they're, they're called the, uh, the O'Neill Twins. You can listen to them today because they're gospel singers. They're called the O'Neill Twins. My wife thinks I'm going to preach like the O'Neill Twins if I keep listening to them. But they have a, 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 a song, Jesus Dropped the Charges. It's not very Presbyterian, but I love them anyways. And one of the twins said in a prayer that he was praying for God to use him. That's great. You pray for Jesus to use you. You pray for Jesus. Send me the widow. Send me the person. Let me live for Christ. Let me show the love of Jesus in word and deed. Oh, beloved. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.